Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to WBBM In-Depth. My name is Jill DeGroote. Today is opening day for the White Sox. It's also the 50th anniversary of a baseball season that transformed Chicago baseball and kept the Sox in Chicago. WBBM's Rob Hart talks to John Owens and David Fletcher, authors of the new book, Chili Dog MVP. Dick Allen, the 72 White Sox, and a transforming Chicago. I want to begin, actually, in a picture that is circulated online uh, from 13 years prior to 1972. And that is a uh, uh, this gorgeous picture, this probably taken by a helicopter, of Comiskey Park during the 1959 World Series. It, it is both a snapshot of a team and the south side of Chicago before all of the changes, because Comiskey Park is still in its natural brick as it existed when it was built in 1910. Um, You're one year away from the whitewashing. You're one year away from the exploding scoreboard. And then if you look behind it, there's no Dan Ryan Expressway. You see an armory. You see other buildings. You see Wentworth Avenue. And then you see the train tracks and the L behind it, the landmarks that we're familiar with. And it seems to me like that's that's a picture of of the south side of Chicago as it was prior to all of these social changes that that hit the city in the 60s and early 70s. That, that's exactly right, Rob. Um, that picture. I love that picture. Um, it's a, a the picture, as you said, that was taken uh, um, during the World Series, the 1959 World Series pre um, Dan Ryan, as you said, at that time. I think that it was a, a maybe a year or two after the Wentworth streetcar uh, finally um, was eliminated because that's how uh, people used, used to get to the games from uh, from downtown and, and points north. So that was one of the ways to get to the game. But, yeah, it was an ent- it was an entirely different South Side. And that's uh, the South Side of, you know, a thriving neighborhood oriented South Side with a huge manufacturing center. And the stockyards were still, you know, they were declining by 1959, but they were still, they were still around. Um, and that was a key employer on the South side. So yeah, it definitely is a snapshot of a, of a period in time right before things changed in the sixties. And you have, uh, uh, even though that picture is gorgeous, the one thing it does not detect is probably the odor of the Chicago stockyards, which, uh, a number of uh, White Sox players, a number of people who attended games there said uh, it was if if the wind was blowing the right way, it was really noticeable. And on right. top of that, uh, the International Amphitheater was not too far away from there. And that was a center of entertainment and political power. I mean, 1968, of course, gets all the uh, attention for the Democratic National Convention. But there were a lot of you know major political conventions at that facility uh, on Halstead, uh, at 43rd. 
Sure. It was the first home of the Bulls. I mean, it was a uh, major um, concert venue, the Beatles, most notably. That was their Chicago introduction uh, was the, 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 the amphitheater. And you mentioned the stockyards. We have a quote in the book from Billy Pierce talking about, you know, when the winds blew from the southwest, it was just the odor was just unbearable. And he, you know, he, Billy Pierce started with the Detroit Tigers and was traded to the Sox in the, in the, um, uh, 1949, I believe, or 1950. And he said he didn't want to come, he didn't want to come here. He didn't want to go to the South side. He was a Detroit native and, and the, the smells were just too much for him. Um, but he grew to love, uh, of course, um, being on the South side and being a member of the White Sox in later years. But, but yeah, it, the, 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 the the stockyards was was where it uh, I mean it had been around since the late 19th century since uh, right after the Civil War and it was still active in the 50s and uh, by that time it was employing primarily a a, 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 a minorities uh, specifically African Americans who live nearby. Now, the city of Chicago, as we approach 1972, through that lens of 1959, everything kind of seemed to have been frozen in place maybe for decades prior to that moment. Um, I always think back to the introduction of Mike Royko's boss, where he talks about how every neighborhood uh, was actually uh, its own country and everybody kept to themselves. And at that point in the history of Chicago, the African-American population was concentrated in the Black Belt. I mean, we call it Bronzeville now, but it was this very narrow strip of the city on the south side that had very defined boundaries. And as we discovered in 1919, if you crossed over them, whether they were streets or just imaginary lines in Lake Michigan, there was going to be conflict. Oh, sure. I mean, there, there were invisible boundaries throughout the south side, throughout the north side as well. Um, and, and, you know, uh, uh, if you were an African-American, you were limited in terms of um, um, mobility. There were, there were neighborhoods that you couldn't buy into. You couldn't get loans for mortgages in certain neighborhoods. You were limited to, you know, that, like you said, Rob, that specific area, that strip of the Black Belt from Roosevelt Road to, 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 to 67th, 69th Street. And, uh, you know, likewise with uh, um, uh, white families, I mean, you were you did not want to stray over on the uh, uh, black side of town as well. So the boundaries were a, a big part of uh, what was a segre- uh, hyper segregated Chicago um, during the mid 20th, 20th century. And then as the 1960s go on, you have a lot of people who live in the South who might have been veterans of World War Two and were able to experience America outside of segregation, outside of the former Confederacy, and realized, actually, there's so much more that we can do and and, and imagine a life without rules. And uh, these families, they, they save up their money, they hop on the Illinois Central, they take the city of New Orleans up to Chicago and start a new life here. And all of a sudden, uh, the Black Belt is unable to hold in this great migration and people want their own piece of the American dream and kind of describe the tumult on the south side of Chicago as the 60s rolled on uh, with this black migration into the city. Well, you're exactly right there. Yeah, I mean, there were two stages to the great migration. There was the great migration um, 
uh, right before World War One and during World War One and after World War One, and then there was the second Great Migration after World War Two, and then you you had housing opening up due to uh, uh, things like the Civil Rights Act in the '60s and the Fair Housing Act. So you had Black families finally able to you know expand their mobility. Uh, but that, you know, came with with uh, a, a price. You know, you had um, um, uh, ethnic white ethnic communities um, that were um, being affected by this. And there was a little pushback from uh, uh, white ethnic communities once black uh, black, um, black families began to expand into to, to uh, different neighborhoods on the south and southwest sides, you know. Um, the white ethnic families were concerned about change and concerned about encroachment um, from uh, black families who were moving in uh, to neighborhoods uh, further south and further southwest. So, and that's something that we we touch on in the book: the the, the you know the uncomfortable um, 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 clash of cultures that that occurred. Um, um, during the 60s and, and early 70s. And in, in, in a way, from a strictly business standpoint, it did affect the White Sox in that their fan base moved from neighborhoods in the city in which Comiskey Park might have been a bus ride away or a train ride or even within walking distance, and now they're moving to the suburbs. Now, now they're, now they're uh, an expressway ride away. Now they're a commuter train ride away. And... How does this affect the team in terms of its drawing power throughout the 1960s now that, uh, you know, Comiskey Park is nowhere near as convenient as it once was? Well, I think the response to that is, is that they started marketing. It was the downtown ballpark. Uh, you know, once the Dan Ryan was built, uh, there was even though people had moved and migrated out to the suburbs, it was easy to get to. Um, you know, I lived out in the western suburbs and it was a lot easier to go to Comiskey Park with the parking and, and so forth like that than it was to go to Wrigley. So I think they marketed it that way um, was it was a big aspect how they how they, they continue their, their, their fan base. Uh, and I think, you know, obviously they have the attractions like the fireworks were, were, were really big things. They were the traditional bat days. I think the emphasis on their traditional rivalries. You know, with the, um, you know, the series against the Yankees always was a big draw. But where we point out in the book is the big strategic mistake that uh, owner Art Allen did when he uh, got out of his contract with WGN and decided to, in 68, have WFLD, which was a fledging station with very little penetration as far as homes with UHF. Uh, and you know, he took he took money a million a year, but he, he lost out of exposure. And we feel that we've outlined extremely well why that was a, a major uh, mistake for the White Sox. Yeah, I mean, the location of the ballpark we always felt was that that that, that was overblown. I, the, I actually, you know, the 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 especially with the construction of the Dan Ryan and, and uh, you know how that. Uh, the Dan Ryan intersected with all the other major highways in the area made, you know, the location a more of a uh, benefit than a, than a problem. But as, 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 as Doc points out, the, they, the White Sox did have their issues with, 
with media specifically um, exposure on television. And that 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 hurt them, I think, more than their location ever did. Well, it sounds like there, there was a confluence of factors in the late 1960s. I mean, I think you have the the go go Sox era, like really just petering out and dying um, because they go from 1967 to being independent chase literally up to the final weekend and losing, you know, dropping both games of a doubleheader to Kansas City. And that's it. They're done. And then uh, 1968 starts. There's a great deal of anticipation. But opening day is it might have been the day after Dr. King was assassinated. So it gets delayed by a day at the request of Major League Baseball. Then you have uh, riots in the city on the west side. And, uh, you know, John, you know this. My mom is a big White Sox fan. And uh, she has a story of, I think, going to one of those games in the opening series, and you could see the smoke from the west side through the arched windows out in left field. And that might have caused some people to have some trepidation about going to, into the city to see a ball game. And then just the fact that the team was bad in 68, 69, and really bad in 1970, necessitating all the changes that led to um, Dick Allen's arrival in Chicago in December of 1971. Right. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, undoubtedly, you know, unrest, civil unrest de- definitely played a role in 68 and, and 69. But, you know, you, you look at those go-go Sox teams and they were, you know, it was all about pitching and defense. The, the White Sox, you know, they, they had a Ted Kluzowski and, you know, you know, some other uh, power, you know, power hitters. But, I mean, the park was so big. You know, I think the fact that they were, you know, pitching and defense oriented after a while, as good as they were for such a long period of time, that kind of uh, that maybe that was a, a little boring to, to, to some prospective fans who were looking at, a, at a, you know, you know, prospective baseball fans. Yeah. You, you know, on the south side, you've got pitching and defense, whereas on the north side, you've got this hitters park. You've got all these you know, uh, power hitters, Ernie Banks and Billy Williams and Ron Sano. And I think that that may have been a little more, the style of baseball may have been a little more attractive to some fans. And maybe that played a role in the declining attendance on the South side as well. You know, the fact that you had this juggernaut on the North side with all these, you know, exciting players. And even on, we, we, we talk about even on the South side, even in places like um, uh, Brighton Park and Bridgeport, you know, you had Cubs events where thousands of fans would show up in 1969, right in the Sox backyard, because, you know, the, the team was excited, the, the Cubs were exciting at that time. And once again, yeah. it's uh, it's Jack Brickhouse uh, calling the excitement on WGN-TV, as opposed to, uh, geez, was it Jack Drees on Channel 32? Jack right. Drees on Channel 32, and, and, and Bob Elton broadcast for decades on WMAQ and he was very low key and you know there was that that played a, a a difference too that was a that was a difference maker as well low key is a being a kind uh <laughs> I, I think i think rob an important to point out is a couple things he'd not brought up is one was the perception of the ballpark in the late 60s it got you know it was you know people thought it was you know a bad place to go and it was dangerous and things like that and so that kind of scared some people off. I think it helped when a good thing when the Dan Ryan L came in, 
that you didn't have to walk back, you know, by the Robert Taylor homes. You know, I did all that as a, as a teenager. So I, I have personal experience. So I think the perception of the park, they had to overcome that. And then you have to remember it was back to ownership is the Art Allen did the deal with uh, Bud Selig. Uh, started in 1967, the, the White Sox and Twins played an exhibition game and, you know, they wanted to, to put a team in uh, County Stadium in, in Milwaukee and they had a great sellout of that exhibition. And that was the, the move where Sillig was going to go after the White Sox and buy them. And so then they did the deal in 68 and 69. They played 10 games up there. One of the things we have in the book, if you saw, we have pictures of Sillig uh, signing this contract over some 67 World Series tickets that weren't used. Uh, and that, you know, I remember as a fan, that was like, what the hell's going on? They're playing games in Milwaukee. And that was really, really uh, not a very good symbol to, that you're going to keep your fan base interested. So that's stumbling with the ownership doing that. And, you know, as we, we count in the book, the Sox were going to go to Milwaukee. There was actually a deal done around Labor Day of 1969 and, uh, you know, Bud Selig thought he had the team bought. And then he was um, really upset when Art Allen had to go back to him and says, I can't sell it because my brother won't let him and let me. And so then John Allen, you know, buys the team from his brother and he's determined to keep the institution, the Chicago White Sox, an American League charter team in Chicago. Just, you know, we have the, the stockyards packing up. He was not going to see the White Sox leave the city or leave Comiskey Park. He was against publicly financed stadiums. And so he's a real hero keeping the White Sox in Chicago. And so that move in late September of 1969, it was the same day the Cubs got eliminated against the Mets, was the big turning point because he made a determination to keep the team in the city and he ended up in, in, in 1970 making the changes in September of 1970 when he brought in uh, Chuck Tanner, Johnny Sane, Roland Heeman, and, and that you know, changed the fortunes of the franchise. And this was a, a radical makeover, too. Uh, at, you know, first off, 1970, they lose 106 games. It's the, that is the worst year in franchise history. And they start making major changes. And all these younger guys come in. Roland Heeman comes in. Uh, Chuck Tanner comes in. Um, uh, Bob Elson, I think he decided to retire. Um, or they made him retire because he'd been around no, the team. They, they fired him. No, they got he got him. fired. Stu Holcomb fired him. And he had been there since 1929 in, in some capacity. And well, I mean, they realized that he was he, that that he wasn't attracting fans. His style was too low key to attract fans, so they were looking for a boost, and they definitely got that boost with Harry Carey. Harry Carey, who had been exiled to Oakland at that point, and uh, was clashing with uh, uh, geez, <laughs> uh, Charlie, Charlie Finley. Finley. Yes, I should know this. Charlie Finley. He's clashing with Charlie Finley. Doesn't want to say uh, "Holy Mule" out in uh, Oakland and alter his style. And you go from the very low-key Bob Elson to Harry Carey and his traveling show. Um, what was that like from a, a fan and a listener's perspective to have this like very radically different style in the broadcast booth? It was, you know, I went to a lot of games in 68, 69. I saw the Seattle Pilots at Comiskey Park, which I'm glad I saw. Uh, you know, the place was empty. 
uh, and 70 was terrible. You could sit anywhere. Um, and so there was a new buzz in, 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 in 71 in that, uh, you know, Harry Carey came on board. Um, you know, we knew it was going to be interesting. The problem was you couldn't find him. You, and WMAQ, you know, canceled their contract because they were that bad. And so they did this jury rig networks, you know, with this FM station, Evanston, WTAQ and LaGrange. And it was a challenge to get them on AM radio. Remember, people back then didn't have FM radios in their car. And so it was creative to listen to the White Sox. And I never, I would always listen to Harry on the radio and turn down Jack Drees and watch the games. But Harry found a, a, a fandom really quickly. I mean, people, it was entertaining. He brought excitement. And I think what really helped the White Sox after the disastrous 70s season, they went out to the West Coast opening series. It was a doubleheader opening day. And the White Sox uh, ended up um, beating the A's, who were favored to be the, the champs that year, and they ended up being the champs. And so they came home to, to Chicago on Good Friday of 1971, and they had 44,000 people show up at Comiskey Park. And you know, one of our characters, left very close to a pitcher, Tom Bradley, was the opening day pitcher for that uh, game against uh, uh, the Angels. And he couldn't believe it when he saw so many fans in the stands. And the White Sox, they didn't even plan. They thought they were going to get, they got 15,000. They ran out of beer, ran out of hot dogs by the fourth inning. But, you know, Harry's first call of the win, pinch hit single, was just a fabulous uh, uh call and, and he got an audience and, and people loved him. He had, you had Ralph Foncher, who was a, basically a high school uh, basketball announcer. He was a station manager, he sold advertising as a, as a sidekick. They were great. I mean, he called it like it, like it was. And it was also, I think, nice as a fan that Harry called radio for nine innings. Uh, you know, his style, I always like, I think he always felt much better in radio than he was on TV. So he definitely found an audience. And then what we talk about in the book, the big coupling of Nancy Faust, who in 71 was in the outfield her second year with the White Sox. And in 72, they brought her behind home plate. And so that chemistry between Harry and, and Nancy, you know, really changed entertainment for baseball uh, and became real integral to the success of that team in 72. So after all of this uh, tumult on the baseball field, where you have the, the the threat to go to Milwaukee has been uh, neutralized. You have uh, a brand new announcer who is, you know, one would argue is a lot more contemporary compared to Bob Elson. You have this uh, pretty blonde uh, playing the organ at the ballpark and uh, getting everybody on their feet. All of these elements are here. The interest has been reestablished. And then in December of 1971, Roland Heeman goes out and gets his superstar. What was the reaction after that trade was pulled off? Uh, as a fan, it was fantastic. It was really exciting because the White Sox were, even though they were about four games under 571, they actually were a pretty good team. You could see them improving some of their homegrown talent. Uh, uh, Bill Melton, Carlos May, uh, Bart Johnson, Terry Forster, just some great talent that they grew through the farm system, gave a lot of hope. And it was also nice. In 71 was the first time they got the red pinstripe uniforms. So as a fan, to have, you know, I knew how good Dick Allen was. And to have him 
to be batting in front of Bill Melton, who won the AL batting crown the last day of the 1971 season was extremely exciting. And so that was from a fan perspective, from a team perspective, they were all very excited. And I think the biggest one was excited was Chuck Tanner because he grew up with the Allen family in Western Pennsylvania. He knew Dick as a kid. I knew his brothers. Um, And so he realized that, you know, common quote was, you know, we we, we got ourselves a bomber. And so um, I think that that marriage of, of, of Dick and Chuck was really an important element because, um, you know, Dick was a controversial player. Uh, he was, you know, difficult to manage, manage, didn't always follow the rules. Uh, and he needed some manager to recognize his special talents and be a little more flexible. And I think that the White Sox, you know, thought they were, really got somebody special. The problem was because their money situation, the Allen, John Allen was still underfinanced, was Dick Allen was going to be a fourth of their payroll. And could they afford him? And John Allen, as a courageous businessman keeping the team in Chicago, realized that he would make money on a draw like John Allen and the fans would come back. His goal, first goal of the White Sox was to get him over a million fans again. And he achieved that in 72. But Stu Holcomb, who was a general manager, and Roland Heeman at that time was working underneath Stu Holcomb. He was only director of player personnel. They basically had to hide from Holcomb. We have talked about a scene up at the winter meetings in Phoenix about this. Stu Holcomb was up on an escalator, and they did this deal downstairs with with Campanaris. And and, uh, so... uh, Holcomb was kind of upset he wasn't in the in the make about the deal because of the financial stuff. So we talk about how the transaction went down, but obviously that was a turning point for the White Sox. And you know, I became very close to to Rowan, and that was his pinnacle trade in his career. I've heard probably 15 times all the intricate details about it. What a lot of people don't know is he tried to get Dick in November of, of 1970. He offered the Cardinals Louis Aparicio for Dick Allen, and they wouldn't do the trade. Which is remarkable that, you know, knowing how transactions work now, you know, Louis Aparicio, who was very much at the end of his career, um, you're able to trade him for a Dick Allen at that time. Uh, just goes to show you how, how things have changed in the world of uh, baseball transactions in the last uh, 52 years. Comiskey Park was a very weird place back then. They They had a... Uh, they had tried a couple of experiments to make up for the the fact that it wasn't a, a hitter's park. Uh, they put in the the sock sod, the astroturf, in the infield to make it run faster. And then at one point, they had put in cyclone fencing in the outfield to uh, shorten the dimensions. And now they have like a legit, for real power hitter, which the numbers of you know, which you could count on one hand throughout White Sox history up to that point. Right. Dick was unique for the White Sox. They had never had a slugger of his magnitude before. Um, and, and they 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 never had a personality like Dick Allen before. He was he was unique. Um, he was iconoclastic. Uh, Chicago, Chicago in general had never seen anybody quite like Dick. So 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 getting him, acquiring him was really a game changer for the organization because he was. He was appointment viewing. He was, a, you know, to a man, 
you know, from teammates to fans that we talked to and from memories, you know, you didn't want to miss a Dick Allen at bat. He was, he was the, you know, he was a, he was a five tool player. He could do it all. Um, and he, he, he was uh, businesslike up at the plate, you know, so you, you didn't want to miss a Dick Allen at bat. What was it like for the, the fan base to have an assertive black athlete on your team? I mean, this is still a time when uh, the Chicago Tribune would not call Muhammad Ali Muhammad Ali. He was still Cassius Clay as far as the paper was concerned. Um, so what was what was kind of the, the city's reaction to, you know, this this guy with the afro and the and the cool looking glasses and just a, a person who was very much um, confident in his own skin? Well, I think the best way I can re- respond to that question, Rob, is that you have to set the scene is that the trade was made in December of 1971 and dick typically held out for contracts and so he did not report right away to spring training to sarasota he was it was a holdout they didn't sign him and so there started to be some negativity about about him in the press because he hadn't signed a contract he's nowhere to be seen even though he was down in sarasota he was practicing at a, at a high school uh third base coach joe lynette who was his teammate at the arkansas travelers in little rock was pitching and batting practice he was there the whole time and so but he didn't sign his deal until around april 1st that year right when the first baseball strike uh happened and so basically you know you know, Allen shows up and the players are on strike. And so that was the introductory press conference where Dick signed. And that's when he first, you talk about an assertive black athlete, people asked him what he wanted to be called. And he said, I want to be called Dick. I don't want to be called Richie. And, and that was, that change was really important for him. And that, that was the first place that people started to call him Dick. Took a little while to do that, but there was that change. So I believe that his assertiveness and confidence was backed up with what he did on the field. He believed in himself. He believed in his talent. He was also at the prime of his career, 30 years old, uh, had an incredible sculpted body. And this was, you know, this obviously turned out to be his pinnacle year, but he believed that he could deliver in a team. And he, for the first time ever in his career, he felt wanted. And that was something that was really important because when he was with the Phillies, you know, they sent him down to Little Rock, didn't prepare him for that disastrous experience. Philadelphia had the racial riots just before the Phillies choked in the 64 pennant race. In 65, he has a fight with, with Frank Thomas. He starts wearing a batting helmet because people are thrown at him. He tries to get out of Philadelphia, eventually gets traded to the Cardinals. So he, he had all these you know, issues. They were, they're all pre-free agency. And so coming to Chicago, you know, he, he got the highest salary ever of, of any Chicago player. Uh, and he was excited and, but he was ready to show out in the field. And I think you're asking, how do the fans react? Well, didn't play any spring training. First game of the year, Saturday, April 15th, Sox are zero and zero. Welber Wood, Dick Allen hits a shot out of old municipal stadium in Kansas city against the Royals. They're up one zip. And I, that was so damn exciting. It just energized the fan base. Unfortunately, Bart Johnson coughed it up 
uh, in extra innings of that f- first game. And the Sox actually dropped their first three games. But Dick went on a tear this, when he first came to the White Sox. And the White Sox ended up winning every home game at Comiskey Park in April 1972. And, you know, Dick hit some monster shots. And it just captivated the fans. He got the sports writers on his side for the first time. It's interesting you mentioned that uh, we have, you know, the, the electorate is getting more independent-minded um, you know, compared to previous years and that the good old-fashioned machine politics are starting to break down, at least the way they were practiced before. And that kind of dovetails very nicely with this, uh, uh, this independent-minded superstar that was playing in Richard J. Daly's backyard. Right, right. I mean, the, the White Sox were uh, 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 um, Richard Daly's team. He was the number one Sox fan. So, yeah, he but he had to contend with, uh, you know, it, 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 as I mentioned, uh, you know, the more independent politicians uh, uh, from uh, folks in Springfield like Richard Newhouse and Harold Washington to, I mean, even, uh, you, you, you know, uh, um, um, politicians within his own group, like the Young Turks, Eddie Burke and Eddie Verdoliak, who were nipping at his heels and and wanting uh, less less control from 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 um, the Eleventh Ward and and more independence. Um, so he had he he had uh, um, independent white aldermen on the north side, like Bill Singer, who grew up a Sox fan in South Shore and and. Uh, uh, became uh, the alderman in the 43rd Ward and, and, and uh, fought daily along with Reverend Jesse Jackson on um, his hand, uh, Daly's handpicked delegation for the um, Democratic National Convention in Miami Beach in 1972. So we talk a, a lot about uh, that and how that occupied Daly through the year along with an independent uh, gubernatorial candidate who would win um, um, the governor's race in 72, Dan Walker. So he had, a, you know, he had a lot of, um, um, he didn't have the control that he had earlier and he had to contend with that. And, uh, you know, it, it, that said, the, the White Sox were arrested for, for Daly in 72 because he continued to be a, a, a stalwart fan of the Sox and of Dick Allen. The Sox draw over a million fans in 1972, and that quieted down. It didn't entirely make it go away because there were overtures from Denver as the 70s went on. And then um, there was some pressure to move to Seattle to settle a lawsuit that was filed by the city over the departure of the pilots for Milwaukee in, in 1969. And But if 1972 doesn't happen, if that team win, you know, goes 81 and 81, or they have a, a, a losing campaign that year, and there was a little bit of life, but then just the mediocrity returns as the 70s go on. Um, does the economic lure of other cities pull them out of Comiskey Park? I mean, you can make the argument that uh, Dick Allen single-handedly kept the White Sox in Chicago in the 1970s. Well, he deserves a lot of credit for it, but I also we do have to give credit for to John Allen. Uh, John Allen, he, he 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 kept the team in Chicago coming and going. His brother, and, you know, they bought the team from Vec, and they end up selling the team back to Vec in, in '75. And he, had, a lot of people don't realize when he did sell the team back to Vec, he retained 20 percent ownership, which he had until he died in 1979. 
And you know, basically what the 72 team did with Dick Allen's, you know, unbelievable monster year when we needed a superstar to, to save the franchise, it got the radio contract back with WMEQ. That was one of the most important foundations. So in, in 73, they went back to WMEQ. They went from channel 32 to channel 44. Basically, the Sox produced and sold their own advertising at channel 44. That radio contract was the foundation that helped them uh, survive after uh, Dick left in, in September of 74, 75, he had the recession, 76, he got Vec back on the team and Chuck Tanner leaves because he doesn't want to be a third base coach for Paul Richards. And, but you have the brief, you know, fabulous year with the best well-known third place team in America, the 77 Hitmen. And so it, it gives a little, but enough to get to the early 80s when Reinsdorf and Eddie Einhorn come on board. But certainly without the 70 team to going 87 and 67 in a shortened strike season, there wouldn't be that. People have to remember the Chicago White Sox from 1970 to 1972 improved 70 wins. That's amazing. And you have I mean, all, of the, all of the pieces in place. Of, of what we know about modern baseball, especially modern baseball in Chicago, they all come together in 1972. Um, you have the marriage of, you first off, Harry Carey uh, establishing himself as, as, a, as a, a media presence in this city and uh, being, you know, the mayor of Rush Street, uh, party man number one. Um, you know, that begins and continues and persists uh, you still see, I mean, I saw this last April, people putting, uh, uh, you know, cans of bud at the foot of his statue at Wrigley Field as, as, a, as a tribute. Um, you have Nancy Faust leading the, the, the musical celebration, and then a couple of years later, uh, they start singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. That tradition persists to this day. And you start to see power at Sox Park for the first time uh, in franchise history because that was a dead ball stadium. You have Melton and Allen in 1972. You have Zisk and Gamble in 1977. And then you have Fisk and Kittle and Luzinski in the early 80s. And then Frank Thomas and Ventura and on and on. That starts in 1972. It continues through this day. That's absolutely right. And I'm glad you mentioned both Nancy and and and, and Harry as sort of co-conspirators along with Dick and, and, and some of the other um, independent uh, 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 minds on the team, like Chuck Tanner and Johnny Sane. We didn't mention Johnny Sane, the pitching coach, uh, the Maverick pitching coach, who uh, was, was, was unique and, and really helped uh, guide a, a, one of the better uh, pitching staffs in the early 70s. But um, yeah, it, it, they, it was a group of a real iconoclasts who helped really put the White Sox back on the map, led by Dick Allen. I mean, Nancy Faust changed baseball entertainment forever that year. She invented walk-up music. Like, you know, it was so special when Dick would come up to the plate. And I've used this quote a lot. It was Michael Jordan before it was Michael Jordan in Chicago. When she hit those heavy pipes in the organ and start playing Jesus Christ Superstar. Bring tears to your eyes. It was that, it was that special and really, really, you know, again, changed baseball entertainment when he was the first person that she editorialized 
their at bat with that particular song, what he meant to the franchise. Thanks for listening to WBBM In-Depth. Don't forget to subscribe on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A News Radio WBBM podcast powered by Odyssey. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.